to the Building Blocks podcast, your go-to source for intriguing insight and inspiration about the future that will be built on Bitcoin and blockchain. at gmail.com. Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Building Blocks podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bledsoe, and joining me today is Zach. Uh, and Zach, why don't you introduce yourself uh, real quick and tell people who you are and what you do and where to find you? Sure. Thank you so much for the introduction and for having me. Uh, my name is Zachary Wiener. I'm the founder of VX Technologies, uh, most notably on the BSV blockchain, we create healthcare and education records that can be verified by anybody later. Um, we do it in a way I think that's uh, something we're very proud of and novel in the industry. We do it without saving any personally identifiable information, which makes it entirely unique uh, in, in how we approach the business itself. Um, but we are uh, entirely built on BSV and uh, very interested in in the goings-on of today with these uh, lawsuits and specifically the one that we're covering. Yeah, so that's my uh, nice segue into my, uh, my next uh, statement here is that this is not a normal episode uh, where we would just basically talk about uh, what you're doing and uh, what you think about uh, various topics around it. But today we're, uh, we have the trial in Norway happening right now, which I think is significant not just to people who uh, are invested in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, uh, blockchain technologies, but it has a wider sig- cultural significance, uh, which I also I want to get into. Um, a lot of the things that are coming out or have already come out in the trial, I think are really kind of the modern world in a microcosm that I think are are going to be really, really, uh, seismic in terms of the effect they have as this information comes out, uh, which I think is going to be really good. This is way beyond just Craig Wright and uh, and and some random internet troll. First of all, let me thank you for coming on. Very short notice. I think we arranged this like 40 minutes ago, uh, and you agreed to come on, and I'm very grateful for that. Thank you so much. Absolutely, and uh, thanks to Twitter for some of what it's good for, even if we might be talking about how bad it is on this episode. Oh, we will. We will. It's one of my favorite whipping posts. Uh, so we, we will talk about the terribleness of social media generally and Twitter in particular. Uh, no question. So if you don't mind real quick, just um, sort of give your take on I follow it pretty close uh, and I have followed it pretty close for a while. Um, so I'd like to get, just get your perspective on it off the bat. Like, what do you know already? And I'm sh- I'm assuming that you have a job. And so you weren't able to like, just like gorge yourself on the live tweets from uh, Kurt Workert's, uh, Twitter. So that, that's a fair assumption. Um, but one of the beautiful things about Twitter is you can go back and all the tweets are still there, at least, you know, relatively speaking. Yeah. Um, and so I was kind of able to go through it, uh, vicariously through Kurt's eyes. I, I thought he did a really good job of covering it with some commentary. Um, that said, you know, I, I wasn't able to pay as much attention to Kurt's live stream as I would have liked today. 
Uh, like you said, I do run a business, you know, so middle of the day is kind of tough. Um, but the outcome of the case, it doesn't really have an effect on the business necessarily, but it does shape the trajectory of the chain that we've chosen to build on. So I, I do pay attention at least enough to get an impression of what's going on, but I'll be honest and say, I don't quite understand all of the details in that I know that this particular case, Craig's actually the defendant for some weird reason, mm -hmm. maybe to protect against a different case in a different jurisdiction. And I'm not quite clear on how that works or why that works, but I do understand that, you know, from a broader perspective, myself and um, at least a few of the friends that I've spoken to, we're looking at this as, you know, can you call somebody, can you defame somebody for saying they are not without any proof that they are not. And then in that case, you know, Craig is producing, as he did in other uh, lawsuits, uh, volumes of evidence that he is Satoshi. And so it kind of boils down to, is he a Satoshi case, even if the underlying legality of it is liable? Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. And I think this actually makes you a pretty good proxy for uh, the general listener who hasn't followed this real close, doesn't understand what all the hoopla is about, doesn't know a lot of the backstory. Uh, and so I, being the obsessive researcher that I am, uh, kind of know a lot of this backstory. Uh, it's probably worthwhile kind of telling my story again just a little bit uh, and how I got here and why I'm, why I'm paying so much attention to it. Uh, so I actually was uh, one of the earlier people to kind of notice the uh, white paper and kind of think about what the implications of this are. Um, and the more I looked at it, the more elegant the solutions here, the, it, the, primarily the elegance was in the economic solutions. The technology was not super impressive. Uh, all this stuff was off the shelf stuff you're cobbling together to create this other kind of system. And the real genius to me was in the economics. Um, you're introducing competition. You're, you're not by not pre-mining, you're creating a commodity with limited supply and no issuer. Uh, you're by not pre-mining, you're not giving yourself an unfair advantage, which makes it a security. Like it was just so well thought out. It was just so well thought out. It really, really impressed me. I was really excited about the implications. I was a little bit turned off by a little bit of the crypto anarchist, uh, uh, sentiment that followed it. The whole code is law take on things. Um, and kind of got turned off kind of, uh, I probably noticed it right around the time that Satoshi Nakamoto actually left around 2011. Uh, and then I was really excited about it for like two, three years. And then I noticed that it seemed like they were just mucking about with it and not doing sensible things to protect the real inherent value, which is the economic incentive structure. Um, and they wanted to make like the, the obvious answer is create bigger blocks to scale it. And they kept doing funky stuff like SegWit. They were already talking about SegWit and they were already talking about all these other uh, changes to it, which turned it into something else. Uh, and if by segregating the transaction data from the actual transaction itself, you're making the forensic trail harder to follow. And old nodes who don't want to follow this uh, basically fork of the protocol have only have two choices. They can either leave the network or not store the signature data on anything that comes from a SegWit node. So it just seemed this didn't make it, this doesn't make any sense to me. It didn't make any sense technically. It didn't make any sense economically. It didn't make any sense socially. 
Like the, and it doesn't make sense legally. No, I think uh, Jimmy Wynn wrote a great piece that I've read a number of times from around that time period, where he says, you know, Bitcoin with the uh, witness and the transaction data coupled together is an e-check by the legality of what it means to send an e-check, and by decoupling it, it's actually now not up to the legal standard as well, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Yeah, that's a really good take. I don't think I've actually read that one, um, but. Suffice to say, I became progressively less excited about it over time. Um, fees were supposed to be going down. Uh, if, if you implement it like the white paper says, by increasing block size, by competition with mining, uh, then the fees actually go down. By artificially limiting uh, the supply of uh, transactions, you're actually driving transaction costs up. Made no sense to me. I'm like this. I'm looking at this as a way to change the life of people that make one to $5 a day uh, and the, to, to open up the market, open up all the markets to people that can't afford the overhead of legacy payment infrastructure uh, to open up like all t- new territories, new products to make new things possible that weren't possible before. So, so I'm looking at all that and I'm seeing what they're doing and I'm like, okay, this is not what I thought it was going to be. It looks like it never is. And so I kind of sold what I had accumulated uh, and, uh, just forgot about it. 2017 happens. They, they went ahead with SegWit. Uh, they, uh, forked off, uh, BCH to try to preserve like the chain the way it, it was. Uh, then there was another fork. I was actually unaware of, I was aware of the bit, the Bitcoin cash, uh, uh, split, but I actually wasn't even aware that BSV existed for a long time. Um, 2020 let's come back to the uh uh, the the pandemic and the uh and all the responses to it um i had i exited a business uh had some money and was had a plan to go get capital and do some other things uh and then the all the capital markets just dried up like there was no money to be had so i had a little time on my hands to think about what i want to do next and i started researching blockchain and crypto again, um, thinking, oh, well, let me just see what's changed. And I discovered that that original thing that had excited me so much was kind of back. There was this thing called Bitcoin SV. Um, I was also aware that Craig Wright had been doxxed by Gizmodo and Wired Magazine in 2015, but I didn't necessarily believe he was Satoshi because of that. Because when I see things getting repeated in the press, my first question is always, okay, who wants me to believe that and why? So in that sense, I'm very, very cynical. Uh, and I didn't necessarily believe it because of that. So I, so I saw that he was fighting hard to protect that original Bitcoin mission with software patents, which I don't love, but I understand kind of why you would think that might be necessary. Uh, and other legal methods to try to just like keep this thing on course which I thought was very, it really resonated with me as like, that seems like what Satoshi would do. Uh, and then I did, I don't know, a few hundred hours of research uh, and kind of went down the rabbit hole of all the available information. Uh, case was starting to come in for the floor, or public information was starting to become public for the Florida trial, which is still, was still probably a year off. But that some, a lot of that was actually publicly available already, already in the public record. And so I started looking at that and I was it. And then I, I started looking at the signings like he signed for he signed for Calvin Air with uh, with an expert present. 
He signed for Matonis. He signed for he signed for people who just wouldn't be wrong about that. Like the odds that they were all the odds that any one of them are fooled. Okay, let's call it a coin flip. But what are the odds that all of them were fooled? Right. It's like, nearly impossible. It's all right? like like you're multiplying. It's 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 like okay, let's say even if you just make it a 50-50, any one of them were fooled, you still have to multiply all those odds together. And these actually signed for like six or seven people. So those those odds get vanishingly small that all those signings were fake. Uh so that and that so and that along with the attestations of people like Ian Grigg and uh Gavin Andreessen and how then the other then the thing that really flipped my spider sense was how the BTC community reacted when Gavin Andreessen came out and said, I actually do believe this is Satoshi. They told him you've been hacked, took away his keys, kicked him out, kicked him out. They just kicked him out immediately. And that like I was like, okay, I see, I think I'm starting to see what's going on here. Um so that was kind of like, so I came to the conclusion that he was Satoshi through this process. Uh, and I, I actually researched, I looked really pretty deeply at all of the counter arguments. Like what's the evidence that he actually is not Satoshi. Uh, and it's all super flimsy, easily explained away. There's all, there's plausible explanations for their every criticism. Uh, also the fact that he's got Asperger's or, uh, is on the autism spectrum. I've known people, I've had friends, uh, and I see those traits in him. I think that causes him to be deeply misunderstood. I think that gives a lot of ammo to critics. Um, but honestly, I wasn't drawn to BSV because of Craig Wright. I was drawn to BSV because the technology actually works and nothing else does. Uh, and then Craig Wright kind of came after. And I've come to conclude that he's a very mistreated and misunderstood figure in the, in the, in the history of planet Earth. Uh, and so... I don't think it really, so for me, the court case doesn't, it doesn't change anything for me, whatever happens on any of these court cases. Um, I know with a high enough certainty uh, what I know that I'm not going to be derailed by some random anonymous internet troll who gets paid by somebody to like cat to like, just act like it's ridiculous. Uh, That might, that, I fully understand. My path was very similar to yours. Uh, I started programming on BCH. My path actually went through a gentleman whose name is Clemens Lay. He was uh, one of the first, if not the first person to recognize that um, what is now S-Script, but Bitcoin script could be Turing complete. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I was programming on BCH. Uh, and the BSV fees were just cheaper with the tool I was using. You could just flip a flag in the library. I flipped the flag. BSV was as um, consistent, faster, and cheaper. And then I started to look at what it meant to be Satoshi. Um, and frankly, there's nobody else on the planet who talks as eloquently or as knowledgeably about what Bitcoin is capable of, not just how it operates, but how it was intended to operate and what can be built from it. And to me, those two things together, I mean, that, that you, I don't really need to know more. Yeah. Right? It works. It works well. There's somebody who understands it who can say, I was there at the beginning, and this is what we meant. This is what it does. This is what you can dream on it. Um, and so for my businesses, you know, very similar to you, it makes no difference in my day-to-day life if Craig is Satoshi. But I'm also convinced 
that through, you know, having spoken to him personally, watched all of the things that he said, for me, that Gavin signing was a, a really big deal. And even how Gavin dealt with the response to his video, um, it wasn't really a backtrack. He was acknowledging that people uh, may have come up with ways that are reasonable, but that for him, it was more than just the technology. It was more than just the signature. It was the knowledge and understanding of conversations that only Satoshi could have known they had. Yeah. And, and here's when you a- get to stuff like that and you put them together, right? You get to those infinitesimally small chances. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, just the fact that he understands his technology so well, uh, it is almost enough by itself to, for me to say, like, he's, he's at least part of the team that was Satoshi. Uh, because. And, and there's like semantically arguing about the difference between the word founder and co-founder at this point. Yeah. Right. They're like, oh, he's not Satoshi because there was more than one person. Well, if somebody founds a company and then brings on a partner and they take on some responsibility, are you no longer the founder? Of course you are. Yeah. You know, and so Satoshi was the creator of Bitcoin, period. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it It seems obvious. I, I think after you parse it out and after you kind of spot um, kind of what the, the troll tactics are, the the financially motivated interests that want him to not be Satoshi because he is creating something that disrupts trillion dollars worth of industry, uh, then I think it just becomes the assertion that he's not Satoshi kind of takes on this like, ridiculous tinge and you just like immediately anybody who will say that he's not satoshi uh you just like automatically i lose a little bit of respect for him and they they have like zero credibility in my eyes because i know they they've just they're just going with the crowd or they're getting paid to tell lies like something's off here like you didn't look and if you looked and were convinced you were not you did not look very deeply uh, and if you are, you're just a dishonest person. Uh, and that, well, hold a knot has to be one of those two things, right? <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. And that, I want to get to that because Craig's, uh, so the first day of the trial, right? So we had day one of the trial and they're ta- they're reading all of Craig's own mean tweets. Uh, and, uh, like, so again, because I've known people who, who are on the spectrum, uh, high functioning, uh, autists, let's say, uh, I know that they can be just sarcastic AF, uh, very dismissive, very unimaginative. In some ways they can be extremely imaginative about very concrete things. And in some ways they can be really unimaginative. They can't imagine how you could see certain things, certain ways. And if they, and they just like, they will just cut you to the bone instantly take a quick and fast dump on you and what you think uh and you have to be thick skinned to be friends with somebody like that because they they'll they if you're not you're going to get your feelings hurt quite a bit and conversely they're a little bit thin skinned and they get their feelings hurt easily uh and so and they'll they'll lash out with a little bit of a temper tantrum uh so i've i've seen all this i know how this works i i see that in them like you're gonna have to be thick skinned to be his friend right i think he i feel like he's somehow learned to tone it down a lot but haven't we all like I, I used to be a lot more caustic than I am now, but I learned over time that doesn't actually help you very much. It's true. It's true. It depends on what you talk to him about because I've spent time with Craig personally after the Florida case, actually, while they were waiting for a verdict. And, you know, we were in a, a, a small crowd of people 
And everybody wanted to talk to him about the case. I mean, that was the topical thing. It was the reason he was in Miami. And I just gave him the space to talk about whatever he wanted to. And for about 45 minutes, he talked about things that he cared about. And he was funny and genuine. Yeah. And you could see that he, he had some delight in him. Right. So, you know, the, the media portrayal of his, um, autism or, or Asperger's condition, I, I think comes out more when he's forced to be combative. And when you can give him the space to be himself and it's not maybe Bitcoin related, it's just personal and friendly. Um, he really is a genuine person. I, 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 he's like a human being. And I think that's both the good and the bad side of this because if Satoshi was not a human being, then both sides have some kind of ideal they can appeal to. But if he's just a flawed human being, then, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of get into a cult of personality, good or bad. Uh, and I think we kind of have to get beyond yeah. that. The trial is, is to me, mostly about getting beyond that cult of personality. Let's just, I really appreciate that the story's getting told. Uh, I mean, for the mean tweets that they were reading on day one, I don't know if you read the live stream from day one, but I mean, it looked, it may, it, he didn't come off well in that because he says mean things to people he doesn't like. Uh, and, you know, no, the filter is a little bit less there uh sometimes for people who do have some asperger's because their social their lack of the social impact and awareness means the filter maybe doesn't operate this quite the same way as someone else um so he said some he said some really mean things about people mostly i would say people who probably deserve it uh but you know you still it's not helpful to you to to, you're giving them ammo when you sink to their level uh, and so it yeah. kind of, it's kind of backfired on him. Okay. So he comes off on it. It comes off a little bit unlikable, which I think is not true if you actually get to know the full picture. Um, but then the next thing they try to do is show that he's a forger. I've looked at all these claims of forgery. There's usually at least there's no chain of custody on any of the things they say is a forgery. So you don't know if this thing's been tampered. You don't know how they came into possession of it. You don't know, like, you don't like most of this stuff was turned over by people, not him. Uh, not under discovery, no chain of custody. Uh, so there's like, there's really nothing to these claims, uh, as far as I can tell. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. And I do want to ask you a question circling back, but I thought it was interesting today. Um, that I, I saw in Kurt's tweets about a KPMG report that made no mention of the fact that like previously printed documents had been scanned in and yeah. that's where metadata came from. Yeah. That yeah. seems dubious to me at best yeah it's not like intentionally misleading i'm gonna be really really interested to see what kpmg actually says about this because how are you doing a forensic examination on documents with no chain of custody it doesn't even make sense on its face um so i'm just interested to see what that the end result like mistake were the end result mistakes the metadata of the scan into discovery or evidence for its authentic origin metadata? Should there have been any? Like that, that just seems wildly off base to me for an audit is especially, you know, these having forensic specialists look at this stuff. Yeah. I mean, to me, the whole first day was, it seemed like, uh, Granite's lawyers. Uh, went and read a bunch of Craig Wright hate subreddits and collected evidence from there uh, and felt like they had an ironclad case because this is what these uh, this is what these uh, these 
trolls think. This is what this is the case they present on the internet, uh, and so they think that this represents reality in some way, and they just kind of presented it almost like exactly the way you'll see it on these hate reddits. And I was like, you know, when you when you stack up all of these arguments back to back, and they're like. It doesn't matter that for any individual one, there's a very plausible possible, uh, you know, you stack them up, it starts to look bad. So after day one, I was kind of like, man, they are, they are really making this look, they're really making Craig Wright look bad. He's coming off badly. You know, I hope they can tell the story like very in a compelling way that, you know, just gives people some insight into the kind of the things that I feel like I have come to understand. And, and day two, boy, did they, boy, did they. And, like, you know, you come out of day one and they're presenting Grinneth like he's a primary school teacher till recently. And he's just this nice, gentle fellow who's trying to live at peace and harmony with the world. And here's Craig Wright saying a bunch of mean things. Uh, and so he came off like and you're thinking like maybe maybe this guy is actually just like not that bad. Uh, and then by the end of day two, he's like a, he's like a Bond villains minion. Uh, like he just, he did it like, he's like participating in a economically, uh, uh, incentivized plot to destroy, uh, a human being, whether he's Satoshi or not and destroy this technology that, uh, is objectively and verifiably superior to the technology that he hopes to profit from because he's got, he's, He's got his BTC bags uh, and you just kind of that all start that all came out in day two. And it was it was a little I got to say, it was a little glorious. I was like, OK, here we go. Now we're going to get all this stuff out in the open. Uh, and I think it's going to be this is it, this really does have the potential to be a game changer. I was skeptical of that because we've been inhaling the sunium and the hopium, uh, you yeah. know, for a while. Uh, but this one, I think as it sinks in, I think it's going to change the nature of the narratives. I'm, I'm curious what you think about this. And this is the question I wanted to circle back to. Um, I, I'm of the opinion that for somebody to be as vitriolic as Holden out has been, there has to be some outside factor aside from just MBTC bags, because for being a holder for as long as he was, he clearly got the airdrops of BCH and BSV, right? So for him, the economic incentive should be about equal for any one of these um, current ledgers or forks to be the clear and decisive winner, which means to me for you to have chosen BTC to be the one and be so willing to back it with, you know, I don't even want to say like you're everything because that's not really what I mean. What I mean is to go on such a tack that it warrants and almost requires the same um, fervish or feverish response is sort of outsized for people who are trying to grow their economic base by making Bitcoin grow in value. Yeah. Especially if they have two new airdrops now, right? So like who's funding this, this case and could it be more than just him wanting the BTC bags to go up? Yeah, so that's a that's a really, really good question. And I think this is where you go into what are the incentive structures at work here? And I think this is the part that I think is really, really important that it gets becomes really public. So the lawyers today went into the Telegram or the, uh, I forget where the groups are. It may be Telegram groups. It may be 
uh, Slack channels. I'm not sure. But they went into kind of where some of these uh, BTC hate groups meet uh, and talk about who's in for some toxicity to destroy BSV and this kind of stuff, right? Um, and so... Okay, so these are... Th- what we're talking about here are non-public chats. These aren't uh, yeah. people like tweeting and commenting on Twitter. They're like... They have some sort of back channel that they're planning in. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds that way to me. I don't know exactly for sure. It could have been like public stuff that you can join. It could have been a public BTC Reddit for all I know. Uh, I don't think so. I think it sounded to me. I, I wasn't there. I'm only reading Kurt's tweets. And I, this is not something I was unaware of before. But they were reading messages from some kind of group where uh, they were saying, and I, like, I'd like to get, I need further clarification on this as well, because I think it's meaningful whether it's like um, a Telegram group, uh, Slack channel, or whether it was like a public Reddit, I think those all are, I think the, those differences are significant. Uh, but basically they were coordinating attacks to, to basically steal the spirit of people who supported BSV uh, to, deli- to get BSV delisted from exchanges uh, and to basically harm BSV and its supporters in any way possible. Uh, and, you know, then you look at people like Greg Maxwell, right? So Greg Maxwell, uh, we don't need to talk about him too much. Some people aren't worth giving too much attention to. But let's just say that he's an influential person in BTC, co-founder of Blockstream, funded part- which is funded partially by MasterCard and the intelligence community's VC arms. Uh, and, but through digital currency group and they, he has been caught using sock puppet accounts being logged in multiple places. He was actually commenting on BCH forum, uh, under another account, trying to stir up, uh, trouble and hatred for, uh, Craig Wright on the BCH reddits. So we know that there's underhanded stuff going on that's financially motivated. Like anybody who's been paying attention knows this. Okay. If you don't know it, it's because you haven't been paying attention. All right. So that's coming out. That's coming out in this trial. Now, who, as far as HODL knots incentive structure. So I, in my opinion, there's like a couple of possibilities here. Number one is that he got lucky and went viral lightning struck. Right. And I kind of had this happen to me. Uh, so I kind of understand, can you go a little bit nuts when you first get a little bit of notoriety? So it's possible that what happened is he did the whole lightning torch thing. Uh, you know, Jack Dorsey and uh, from Twitter and other like high profile people jumped on the bandwagon and supported it. And he got some level of notoriety. Now he's kind of high on his own supply and looking for other ways to pander to these BTC maxis. Uh, to get to increase his notoriety, to get more social uh, credibility, uh, to get more social uh, credit. Uh, and so he says, oh, they they seem to enjoy when you hate Craig Wright. So I'll just really hate Craig Wright. Uh, and so he just goes in on it. And maybe he's just by maybe he's just a bully by nature. Maybe he just really likes exerting, hurting people. And maybe it makes him feel powerful. And now you're hurting someone influential and well-known, and that maybe makes him feel more powerful. Or maybe it's really only about being praised. Maybe he, maybe his mom and dad didn't hug him very much when he was a kid. And so he's just trying to get people to tell him, to pat him on the back and tell him good job. Uh, that's possible. Well, you, you mentioned something um, 
called Lightning Torch that got him notoriety. Yeah. What, what is Lightning Torch? So, uh, so let me recommend to everybody that you watch. Uh, so Kurt Workert is way more informed on all of this history than I am. Um, but he, so he was, so he actually, I didn't actually know about it because it happened in my dead spot where I wasn't really paying much attention to blockchain technology. Um, but apparently what happened, what he did was, uh, and, and, Craig, and Kurt talked about this on his uh, live stream today. They did one hour on uh, the, what happened today. And he retold the story again about how uh, basically he started this thing called the lightning torch where he's like, we're going to use the lightning network and pass sats Satoshis, which is the base unit of uh, Bitcoin. We're going to pass these Satoshis through lightning network and everybody add a little bit and pass it along. Uh, and so this kind of went viral this kind of went viral because people really wanted to believe lightning network could save Bitcoin. Uh, they really, does he have, do we know if he has interest in lightning network generally, is he well, a dev or part of the team that owns the protocol? So I think a lot of his personal history, we don't know yet, but what I do know is that at some point he became an account manager for a company that is, uh, I think partially or majority owned by Blockstream. Okay. So that could have been after. So, that, that could have very well been after, though. I mean, I don't know at okay. what point that happened. But realistically, he's involved with Bitcoin and then um, wants to see Bitcoin take the direction that many of us who are in BSV want to see it take, which is be able to be exchanged across any uh, denomination, right, as small as possible. The way to do that efficiently on, on BTC becomes Lightning Network. He starts up this uh, viral effort for people to understand or adopt lightning and then essentially gets a job. So he's now uh, economically supported by lightning network, whether or not he's running nodes and pulling profit from it. But his ability to uh, be an influencer in the lightning space has netted him, you know, let's, let's call it a job, if not a career. Yes. Um, and if, Bitcoin were to exist in a way that the white paper defines lightning network is not even necessary. As a matter of fact, it's a layer two that reduces security and increases risk. It has so absolutely it, no, no resemblance to anything blockchain, right? So obviously right. Dr. Craig Wright is going to take uh, immediate and sustained dumps on it at every opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> but also this thing that he believes is going to save the crippled BTC or let's call it hobbled because yeah. it's still moving along and, I, I and actually, increased in price. I actually like to call it cripple coin. <laughs> um, but he, he's part of this movement to, to create faster transactions on top of the slow network and has become famous in some ways for participating in this particular product or project of lightning. And now he's finding out that lightning is not necessary and attacking the individual who is pointing out that lightning was never necessary. Right. I mean, if I'm understanding this correctly, lightning is technically deeply flawed. And Dr. Craig Wright knew that immediately because he's Satoshi and he wrote the white paper. So he understands how to do how to solve computer science problems in a way that provides you the incentive structure necessary to keep a system functioning for the long term. Like he gets that. He sees how these incentive structures lock together, how these principles give you solutions that make things work over time. Lightning has absolutely none of those. 
In fact, it introduces a bunch of problems that Bitcoin solves, like the Byzantine general problem is back, like the traveling salesman problem is back. This fully mesh network, uh, you, you, how do you get from point A to point B? Now you have the, the in computer science, it's called, we call it the traveling salesman problem that you can't calculate a p- efficient path. Uh, you know, uh, it, so lightning network quite literally described itself and I'm, I'm, I would be shocked if they haven't taken this off their webpage yet, but quite literally described themselves, um, using an abacus as the description. Oh my God. Like this is what you do on lightning network. I mean, if that's not telling, I don't know what is, but my point was simply that one of the things I had written down and how we kind of got down this path was who's paying for this case. Yeah. 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 Because. I didn't believe it was really just about pumping the BTC bags. But now that I know that he got his notoriety and sort of his claim to fame was built on a layer two that's not really necessary. And there's only one person in the world that can truly prove that it's not really necessary. It makes a lot of sense why he would be attacking that person. Yes, it makes a lot of sense why uh, the founders of Blockstream, who took over the project, drove Satoshi out. And then took away Gavin Anderson's, Anderson's, uh, sorry, I always mispronounce his last name. He took away his access to Bitcoin, his, his position as lead maintainer handed to him by Satoshi because he endorsed Craig Wright as Satoshi and wouldn't renege on it. Like that, it, it makes sense why they also have a really powerful interest. I mean, the whole purpose of Blockstream, and this is like, again, this, there's some supposition here, but I believe just like we're seeing now, evidence will come out that this was that this is true. The incentives of Blockstream being invested in by legacy payment infrastructure and legacy banks is to actually prevent Bitcoin from being more efficient than the banking system. And then they can create additional products on top of it that they own and profit from, like let, like Lightning Network which actually is can never actually work, but it doesn't actually matter for, for the, for the lead investors in Blockstream. It actually doesn't matter if Bitcoin works or not. If Bitcoin fails because they crippled it, uh, then they win because they've eliminated a competitor. If Bitcoin works on these layer two, supposedly, supposedly layer two networks, which there is no such thing. It's either layer one or it's not, it's not a thing. Um, but if it if it works based on these other these new layers that they actually built in control, uh, then they still win. Um, so they've so so they create this heads I win tails you lose scenario and they don't actually care. But there's only one person. They took over the project. They crippled it. They make sure it can never really compete with them. But there's one problem. There's still this guy out there who designed this thing and knows what it can do. And if he says that you're doing it wrong, look what, look here, uh, here's where, here's how it actually works. Then the gig, the, the gig is up for them. Right. So obviously they have every incentive to try to destroy Craig Wright. And it, one thing I'm really glad of. So people say, okay, Craig Wright said he would sign. Craig Wright said he would move coins. He said he would dump all of his BTC and crash the price and put it all in BSV and drive up the price. Okay. But I, here's something you should you you to think about, and it was actually Sertoshi who pointed this out to me, that you're talking about crashing a trillion dollar market cap uh, economy. Now, how much does it cost to make someone disappear? Less than it costs to crash a trillion dollar economy. Yes, 
less than losing your trillions of dollars of, uh, you know, uh, of value that, you know, Tether can print out of thin air, you know? Yeah. I think there's probably some element of market manipulation concern there as well. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of regular, like Craig is very um, litigiously minded. He's very thoughtful about how he structures the businesses to make sure that they're well organized and things like that. And while, you know, it may not technically be illegal to dump a commodity that doesn't have a uh, given asset price from the uh, value perspective of government auditors. You know, as soon as you do something where a regulator believes you're acting in bad faith, you're a target. Yeah, exactly. right. So, so, to, so to do things the right way is not that much more difficult, right? So it seems to me like so he, somebody said to him, hey, you're going to become a target if you do that. Why don't you just tell the regulators what you want to do first and have sort of a structured plan of announcement, and then you can go ahead and do it and cause all hell. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's probably the plan that he took. He took, like, he, so... I think he realized that a public signing would endorse the idea that keys equal identity, which is a key part of the whole code is law movement, uh, which he does not believe. And who like what kind of person who lives in this reality would believe it? I mean, you like, OK, so I'll my politically, I'm sort of like borderline voluntarist, borderline ANCAP, uh, which means that uh, and, ANCAP meaning anarcho-capitalist, which means that I, I believe in as few rules as possible and people should be responsible for themselves uh, and should make their own decisions, basically. People should be free and the, and the system should be free of coercion. OK, so that means as small a government as possible, because really all the government has at its disposal is coercion. Um, they, if, if they're convincing you, I mean, you want to convince me to pay for the road. Okay, I'm all about it. But uh, what if I don't want, what if I don't think this road is necessary or useful? I don't have any choice. I don't pay my taxes. Then what? Somebody's going to come to my house and knock on my door and put a gun to my head and say, you're going to pay your taxes. Are you going to, I'm going to kidnap you. And I say, well, what if I resist kidnapping? They say, well, we'll kill you. Okay, then I guess I'm going to pay my taxes. Uh, so men with guns at your door trump everything. A court order that they will claim the right to come and murder you is you're going to do whatever they want. And that's kind of like, so, so that's my, that's my perspective. But your alternative to having a legal system and this code is law thing is that if somebody steals the keys to your car, now they own your car. If they steal the keys to your house, if they get in your house and lock you out, now they own your house. Like, okay, what I catch somebody breaking into my basement. And there's no police, uh, no jails. Now what? Like you got, if you, if you, if you really want to dispense with any sort of legal system, you have a lot of problems to solve problems around ownership and property rights that in common law are actually already solved. You don't have to resolve them. You just have to apply them more sanely than they sometimes do get applied. I mean, you got problems like eminent domain and different things like that, which need reform. The prison industrial complex obviously needs reform. But, you know, the basic structure, you need these, some of these basic guidelines and structures there um, or else you have to resort to protecting yourself yourself. And it's more economical for me just to shoot the intruder than try to keep them chained <laughs> up in my basement for a year. Right. So 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 government as small as possible. Right. But the whole idea that code is law is just ludicrous. Because whether you like it or not, somebody's going to claim the right to come to your door with a court order and a gun and make you do whatever they want. So you stole somebody's Bitcoin. 
Uh, you stole somebody's keys to their wallet, and now you now you own their. I guess you own their Bitcoin. Well, no, you don't. They have some recourse. It's called the legal system. Okay. So Craig has always wanted to build in some mechanisms to allow for court orders and stuff like that. Um, so I think he realized that if he publicly signs before a court endorses his identity, that he's actually endorsed a lot of this the stuff that. The, they used to justify taking the project over in the first place. Uh, and so I think it was actually probably the right decision. I think, you know, he made a lot of noise about it at first, about um, like how he was going to go about things. But I think in the end, he settled on a better path, which is to use the legal mechanisms that are at his disposal, which brings us back to uh, the what, it, what reason does Magnus Granith have to do this? Why does he hate Craig Wright so bad? Why does he sit in court and giggle as they're reading tweets where uh, he has said horrific things about this person? Why does Craig Wright get basically death threats on a daily basis? Why, if you come out and support BTC, or uh, I'm sorry, why, if you come out and support BSV, do people start threatening you? Because that's happened to me, right? All I did was I, you know, I just kind of combated some of the silliness that's out there to support BTC, uh, made very common sense replies. Uh, and then all of a sudden somebody's trying to find, trying to post pictures of my house. They got the wrong house, but they tried to find it. That's somewhere that close to where I used to live. And they're posting pictures online and being like, is this you? I'll see you soon. And this kind of stuff. You know what Twitter did about that, by the way? Nothing. Uh, Nothing. They said, Oh, this does not violate our community standards. I'm like, Okay. Okay, I see. So, you know, what what's the what's the real incentive structure behind this? So there has to I think there's probably a mixture of incentives. One is social credit, right? For the same reason that if you get enough, this is why I quit Twitter. So I actually Twitter was very important to my professional story at one point. Um I actually had gotten up to about sixty five thousand followers, um, was consider making thought leader lists and stuff in technology and DevOps and agile. Um, and, uh, my career took a few quantum leaps during that period of time. Uh, but Twitter just became so toxic that I just rage quit in 2020. Like they literally, it got to the point where you can't, you literally can't say anything without somebody being so proud of how much it offends them. Just it's there. Yeah. The outrage Olympics just got out of control. You can't have a thoughtful discussion. You can't say anything nuanced. You can't if you don't endorse one hundred percent somebody's ideological side. You're you know you're a you're I've been called a communist and a a, a colonizer in the same day. Uh, you know <laughs> for 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 the same comment. Uh, so it just like the, the polarization just got, it's just so, it just got so toxic. I left, I, I left the, I thought I don't really need it that much professionally anymore. It's not good for anything. It used to be, it used to be that you could get people to, you know, curate content for you on Twitter. That was what drew me to it is that you got really smart people on Twitter who are telling you things they think it's important for you to pay attention to. And that was really valuable. That was, I found a lot of value in that. Uh, and then people could, you can pick, you can pick and find content and people to support that you think are saying the right kinds of things and you can support them. And that's what happened to me. I kind of just blew up because I was just saying 
interesting things. Some of them were slightly controversial about technology, but that kind of, that's not necessarily a bad thing in terms of like generating support, right? But that trait right there, amplified, is where it all went wrong and why I left Twitter. And, and it's responsible for at least some of the level of vitriol we see. It's been culturally normalized by these trolls. So not only are you spot on about that, uh, I was reading an article on my way home from New York last week uh, in a magazine that I picked up in the airport. Um, Bob Iger had attempted to buy or had, had considered purchasing Twitter for Disney in, a, in or around 2014 when Twitter first made some indications that they were going to be up for public sale. And uh, for for Disney, they knew they wanted to be in the streaming business. Um, Twitter was probably the ideal distribution network for them. Immediate viewership, right? Like even in-scroll viewership for the things they wanted to promote, including their uh, trailers or even directly um, playing videos from episodes that are up next in your queue as you're scrolling through social stuff. Sounds like a good idea. Uh, but, Right. But after, after doing the research on Twitter, uh, what I thought was, what was interesting, the reason this article came back up around now is because he knew back then that there were more bots than Twitter was saying. And that was one of the reasons why, why Disney backed off. Um, cause they had to think about this as distribution numbers, not just, uh, daily active user numbers. But he said specifically that something didn't feel right about the deal. And he took the weekend to think about it. And what he recognized was that he couldn't expose what he wanted to be a family-friendly business, Disney, to the level of hate that is found everywhere on Twitter. So there was no escape from hatred on the platform. There's no corner of it where people are just nice or cordial. And that ultimately led them to not buy Twitter in 2014, 2015. But I thought that was really telling, you know, that it's been at least hinting at becoming a majority negativity platform uh, for about a decade now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of, it kind of trended that way the whole time I was on it. And I was just getting more and more annoyed by it, by the inability for people to like, and it, and it kind of starts like maybe one side is like more vitriolic and accusatory than the other, but then the other side responds in kind. And then you just kind of, it's like this increasing arms race of dehumanizing people who disagree with you. Uh, and it seems like the people who are generally the most mean, and I know that there are exceptions like holding out, but it seems to me like the people who are, are genuinely the most mean and spend the most time antagonizing you have like no following. No, they're because they're throwaway anonymous accounts. It's not like, like people aren't going to put their name on that. They're not going to put their real identity behind this. Right. I mean, like back in the day, back in Usenet and, uh, uh, you know, back back in the days when we were riding our pterodactyls to work um, <laughs> there, you know, there was uh, there. You used to have flame wars and trolls, but they were really high level, uh, you know, like when I first got I was I was, you know, young. It was young, just out of college, just had my first work in the career, thought I was pretty smart got on Usenet uh, and started arguing with people immediately. Just started arguing with people because I, I like to do it. It's like kind of a sport um, and very quickly discovered. I do not how I do not know how to form a cogent argument 
are how to insult people prop- are how to insult people properly uh, because you will get flamed every your your rhetorically your logic will be eviscerated and it will be made obvious to you that you are not qualified to serve people fries at McDonald's in very short order <laughs> and so it makes you step your game up right it really does but there's still always a level of uh, congeniality. Uh, that like, it was like, it was really helped me learn that, okay, I actually said some fallacious things without realizing they were fallacious and they were all pointed out to me very quickly. Um, so, you know, anyway, it was really good. So these days, like, so trolling has always kind of been a little bit of a sport. People with a troll gene in England, they call it taking the piss out of you, um, where they just like deflate you Mm -hmm. a little bit. Right. Um, and it's just it's just kind of a it's culturally normalized and it's I think it's healthy. It's healthy for people to like tease you a little bit, especially when you get a little too full of yourself. That's a healthy part of the culture. But so trolling, I think, at its best, kinda is that. You're lampooning some you're 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 illustrating absurdity with absurdity. I'm taking your absurdity to an absurd length so that you can see a reflection of it. Uh, and if you're smart, you pay attention to that. And that informs you. But it seems that most people are not smart enough for that to work. They just escalate. You treat them like I used to do this thing back when the Internet was young where I would reflect someone's own tone and energy back to them. Like, let's see how you like it. Let's see if you think this is the right way to approach this. But it like they never caught on that it was really... I was literally just taking their argument word for word, changing the position of it and giving, feeding it back to them. Like, how dare you? This is how you talk to people. (laughs) You're horrible. You know, so it didn't work at all. Uh, So, but now, okay. So trolling no longer has any sort of uh, connotation of just like being a good natured goof. Who's just teasing people. Right. Um, It's, it's, a troll is just someone either trying to make trouble for trouble's sake, uh, try to get people's blood pressure up, which again, I think that can be a little bit of a public service. Uh, cause some people need to get their, some people need to calm down and you, you know, you get their blood pressure up a little bit. They'll, <laughs> is it worth it? Is it worth it? Um, but there's a, another story that I think is informative here. So again, I've kind of dated myself here. As if the beard doesn't, um, the mm-hmm. white, the white, the white Santa beard. Well, they can't see your beard. Remember that they That's can't true. see your beard. Uh, but I, <laughs> yeah. So, so I got the the white beard that if I let it grow too long, I start drawing Santa comparisons. Um, but you know, back in the nineties, I would I was a huge open source advocate. Um, you know, Linux was uh, released in say the first version of the kernel went on uh, the internet in ninety two. I started playing with it in 93. Um, and the economics of open source just made sense to me. We have this new tool called the internet, uh, which enables this ultra widespread collaboration. Uh, and with that, you can get people to work on this project that they care about, not just not for money, some maybe for money, but not just for money, because it it's something that's important to them, either for uh, for reasons of hobby or profession or whatever. And I thought there's, this is a way that you're going to beat commercial producers. And, you know, and I sort of like the economics of it just clicked for me and made sense. 
so I started advocating for open source and I was like this this Linux thing these BSDs like they're they're for real they're legit they're gonna like take over operating systems over time um, and so there's a certain large company that produced operating systems crappy operating systems technically deficient operating systems insecure operating systems that were actually quite garbage compared to any Unix uh, and uh, I was saying this on, like, say, the Computer World forums. Uh, it, I got, a, I had an account there, read Computer World, started commenting on the forums, and the man, some people really hated me. Certain people just really hated me, uh, and hated that I said this, and took every opportunity to try to make me look like an idiot. And I thought, well, this is curious. First of all, why would you hate open source software? Uh, why would you like, and why would you react so strongly? Why would you not be open to any possible counter argument? Why would you respond? Why would you, a seemingly intelligent person who seems intelligent, respond to a strong point with a weak point and not acknowledge that that point was strong and yours was weak? Like that doesn't make any sense to me. I know, you know, that you're smart enough to recognize the difference. So why in the world would you? be be doing this and so i turned on this problem for a while that's just there they were too adamant they would never acknowledge any uncertainty they would never acknowledge any kind of uh any kind of uh you know uh they would never acknowledge that you made a good point it was all ridicule everything you said was ridiculous um and i do say ridiculous things sometimes but i'm pretty sure not everything i say is ridiculous and I think one of the other common things that I saw you describe, at least in one of your threads a while back, was uh, the movement to a new straw man, right? So rather than acknowledge that you've made a good point and further discuss the intricacies of this particular point, they'll just like wave a different flag yeah. on the left side and be like, yeah, but look over here in a way that's like intended to gaslight you again and make you forget that like that this isn't even the thing you guys were talking about to begin with. Right. You know, you've now been dragged into a different angle of a conversation. Yeah. I mean the red herring, -dope. The, yeah, it's a rope -a dope. It's a red herring. It's a, it's a false flag. It's a, it's distraction. Like there's a, there's a, I feel like these tech, these tactics have been really refined over the years. Uh, and there's like, there's like some kind of school out there where they teach people to troll. And I think that I actually do think that might be literally true. I think, I think somebody like, I, I think Greg Maxwell might have acolytes cause he doesn't have enough sock puppet. He can't run enough sock puppet accounts to account for all this stuff. Right. Um, so right. I actually, I actually busted a guy. Um, I won't say his name and I won't actually say the company that he worked for, but he was my biggest sparring partner on computer world forums he had an anonymous account i use my real name just like i do now uh and i made good faith arguments and i tried to actually determine if what he was saying was right okay this was not a courtesy that was returned there was no good faith arguing and attempt to determine if i was right it was always just like immediate uh you know it was if i if i if i stumped him for a second he just changed topics um yeah but but open source is communism and this kind of, this kind of, this kind of argument. Um, and so I challenged him. I said, I said, you know, it's not fair because I'm, everything I'm saying is backed by my professional reputation because this is going to be preserved forever on the internet. 
and you're anonymous, you don't want people to know who you are. So you can lie. So you can just, you can be ridiculous. You can say ridiculous things. I said, I, I don't, I just think that you're probably somebody who has a financial interest in some uh, commercial software that's threatened by open source. And I think that's why you do this. And I challenge you to prove me wrong. And he said, well, how would I even do that? I said, well, you can tell me your real name. You can give me your work phone address uh, or your work phone phone number. Back then you had these phone numbers. People, some of our younger listeners won't know anything about this, but you had a phone number that was tied Mm -hmm. to a physical location. Uh, And you worked somewhere where you went into this office and you sat down at a desk and you had a phone that had that phone number. And I could call it. And, I and could, not just that, right? The, the company had a number. Yeah. And then you had like a sub number, an extension after yeah. it. Yeah. So like you had to be working at that company for people to reach you by the extension. That's right. And so I challenged him. I said, you give me your fo- the phone number of your employer and the phone number that I can, like the company, how either of how I can get to the company directory and find you and you answer it, or you give me. Uh, you know, you give me like, I like set some parameters around, uh, this is how I believe that you're, 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 I won't tell anybody who you are, but I will actually, but, but you, I'll be confident that I'm actually arguing with somebody who it's capable of having an actual real discussion with. And so he did, he gave me a work, he gave me a work number and an extension and I called the company and it was a Microsoft owned company. And he wasn't yeah. actually, he wasn't actually in the directory, but I, so, but I could ask for him and they've sent me right to his phone. So this whole thing stunk to high heaven. And in, I had really, it took a lot of work to back him into this corner. Um, but yeah, so, so this, this kind of tactic has been going on a long time. Uh, and, and now we're getting into what's coming out in the trial is that, this kind of thing is actually still going on, organized by commercial entities against disruptive projects and software and technologies that they're trying to like delay. And I, I really think now it's a delay tactic um, because I think they know they can't actually win. They're just trying to dump as much as they can before it all goes side goes down on them. Before they're 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 it's at the top. It's rats deserting a sinking ship. Um. So I think they know the time's running out and they're that's and it's all much more intense because the technology you can't you can't dispute the technology. It observably provably works. BSV observably right. provably like Satoshi was right, Bitcoin scales, uh big blocks are the way to do it. Uh it gets cheaper the bigger it gets because of competition, because of volume. The digital gold was always nonsense. Um like so that they, they, you can't win that argument. So they've tried to collapse the whole thing. Microsoft actually had a strategy of collapsing the whole thing down to Red Hat. They knew they couldn't beat Linux. So they tried to, in the public realm, this was a strategy that they actually announced uh, to their shareholders, that they're going to try to collapse all of Linux down to Red Hat and attack Red Hat because they thought they had some points that they could, uh, they could beat it with. Um, and I think that's what the BTC core community has done. They've tried to collapse all of uh, alternate Bitcoin theories down to Craig Wright and attack him because they can like kind of leverage some of his flaws, which admittedly he has because he's a human being and not some paragon of like uh, idealism. Uh, like it would be great 
if he was, but he's not. He's just a person. He's a very smart person, a person who came up with a great system and had to went about and put the time and effort in to make it real. Uh, and you know, that deserves, that alone deserves respect. Right. Um, so back to incentive structures. Okay. So we got this, we got this combination here of really toxic social media being normalized of outrage, getting attention of your, 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 the more snarky you are, the the better you do on social media. The more the more dopamine you trigger in your brain with the likes and the retweets. So now you have a powerful commercial interest that observably, observably, is ha- like Kyle Roche or one. What was his name? Oh yeah, it was Kyle Roche who came out and said, "Well, we'll just turn our troll armies loose." on them. We've done it and destroy them. We've done it before. Right. Uh, and if you don't know who Kyle Roche is, we may not have time to go into that right now, but, um, um, look at, look it up. Uh, maybe we'll do a future, yeah, future one. Deserves on that. a whole conversation in and of itself. If there's you just, don't know who Kyle Roche is. <laughs> there's so much news. That's why I wanted to get Kurt on and just talk over news, but, uh, he's in Norway or something. The lazy, lazy guy. Um, <laughs> But uh, he was still going to come on, and then he didn't get to, and then uh, so uh, so I'll get him so on. We'll I'm, talk I'm about, used to filling in for Kurt. Okay. We have uh, we have I, I live uh, right, you know, a, a stone's throw away from Kurt in in real life. Okay, and cool. So um, when he's when he's on tour, you know, being the Bitcoin historian, um, I get the privilege, and, and I mean this sincerely. I'm not saying that sarcastically. I get the privilege of running our Bitcoin meetup. Okay. So, well, hey, you're doing it. Fill in for Kurt. <laughs> you didn't even know that you were doing it this time either. Um, not that you're not a great guest, you are, and I think a, a great proxy for a lot of the listeners. Um, you know, I want to draw in a more mainstream audience and kind of preemptively insulate them. You know, forewarned is forearmed. I want to insulate them against some of the misinformation that passes for uh, the crypto consensus, um, which is another thing. Right now. We've already now we are past code is law and now we're to consensus is law. Um, and people who have a very low threshold for evidence to form a belief see a lot of people seem to think this. So I'll I'll think it, too. Uh, and so and now you've got you combine that with normalizing this like vitriol, cyberbullying toxicity on social media. And you've got this combination of paid agitators which I'm 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 firmly convinced that those are that they're out there and they're fairly easy to spot if you know what you're looking for and then useful idiots who just are gaining social credibility in their peer group by piling on to the dog pile. Look, I'm a part two. Look, I hate Craig Wright too, you know. Uh so I think And then potentially identifying the ones that are willing to take it further on their own. And back them in new ways, That's like right. may have happened with holding up. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, which brings me to my sp- my sponsor announcement. Because <laughs> uh, I actually uh, was going to announce this uh, um, in a, a separate one, but I just wanted to combine this because I want to get this information out there as quick as I can. It's pretty exciting. So um, I've got a few uh, companies that have agreed to sponsor the podcast. Uh, one of them is CoinGeek. Uh, and that is kind of an alignment of, um, ideas and interests, right? CoinGeek is not, does not pretend to be objective journalism. CoinGeek is, is partisan for BSV because 
they believe that it's correct, right? It's a collection of people who believe BSV is Bitcoin. I do too. Um, I want to be free to do my own thing, but they are going to sponsor the podcast. I'm going to send traffic their way. They've got a lot of great content, lots and lots of wonderful content. The Bitcoin basic stuff that they do is just out of this world. Helped me a lot when I first came back to Bitcoin. Um, and they're, I'm going to send, I'm going to put a link in the description where uh, it's a tonic pal link that will make me a couple cents if you click it and it'll take you to CoinGeek's coverage of the trial. So everybody to do uh, click that help support the podcast because uh, this is a, this is more than just commercial interest for me. Uh, like I really think that we have an opportunity to make the world a better place using this technology. And I'm, I'm not willing to let it pass by without a fight. Uh, so if you want to help support that, then uh, visit the sponsor, follow the links that will help. It will help more than, you know, it will help me continue to do this. All right. So, uh, Zach, I know that you are just about out of time. I really, really appreciate uh, you sticking with me this long. We've been going over an hour. Uh, it's been a great discussion. Um, I really, really appreciate you, you, you agreeing to, to pinch hit on the last minute. Uh, really appreciate your insights as well. You really uh, you made a couple points I, didn't, I hadn't heard and didn't know, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, so any parting words before we sign off? Thank you. Sure. Um, so rather than plug my own stuff in this opportunity, uh, in the spirit of collectivism and and doing good in the world. Uh, so I'll tell you, I, we have a morning meeting every meeting, and I end it um, by saying with an instruction, let's go do some good in the world. Um, one of the things that we are helping to push uh, from my corporation in a partnership with Bitcoin Association is the BSV Academy. Um, and they're working to bring a BSV focused, but Bitcoin curriculum to uh, middle school, high school and college age students globally, starting in Africa. So if you have not heard of the Bitcoin or BSV Academy, go do me a favor. Don't don't. I mean, don't shy away from looking up my companies, but if you're only choosing one, go look at the BSV Academy and see if there's some way that you can help bring it to your neighborhood. Um, because that's going to be one of the best ways that we can combat this misinformation about Craig is by getting people to understand what Bitcoin can actually do and that BSV is the Bitcoin that can do it. The second thing that I'd like to say as parting words is go do something on Bitcoin today, right? Play a game, send a message, post on my two cents, do something. Even if you think the place you're operating on is filled with bots today, Lots of the best services that we use right now were filled with bots to begin with, Twitter being one of them. So just go do something on BSV every day. Make sure you're taking some action. Write something to chain. Send a micropayment. Play a game. Do something. And uh, if we can all do that, it'll be a snowball effect. So I'll leave those as my parting words. All right. I love it, man. I love it. 100%. BSV Academy. Uh, I'm, a, I'm on board. Uh, I'm really, I'm willing to help that mission as any way that I can. I think this is very important and very exciting. Uh, and I mean, look, if you don't think if you, if you want to take the Paul Krugman approach and say the internet's only going to have the financial impact of the, uh, fax machine. And you think the same thing about Bitcoin, (laughs) I, I couldn't blame you based on what you've observed from all the scams and the, the limitations and fake Bitcoin. Uh, but I think you're going to regret that thought. And I think you need to get on, you, you need to wake up. If you, when you can predict the future, you can profit from it. Uh, I think this is inevitable. I think you need to get on board. BSV Academy is a good place to start. 
uh, coin geeks, uh, Bitcoin materials are a good place to start. Uh, and, uh, I guess with that, we'll have to sign off. Uh, so for the building blocks podcast, I'm Greg Bledsoe on behalf of Zach Wiener. Uh, we, we thank you very much for tuning in and, uh, we'll talk to you next time. All right. Uh, very cool. Thanks, man. I really do appreciate it. I know you got to run. You got to Thank you for listening. Please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter, as well as like and share Block Builder Labs content on both platforms. You can find me at Bodger Legus on Twitter and tip me at Bodger Legus on Handcash if you feel so inclined. Let's go build.